The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 1. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you all so much. What a um, fitting passage for as we continue to go through the book of Colossians for um, this morning. Um, And uh, so you know, one of the things we treasure in our church is that we take a book of the Bible and a passage and we walk through it. Uh, We don't walk around it. We walk straight through books and passages and uh, this particular letter from Colossians. Uh, On our street, uh, there was a problem with speeding. And um, I'm sure many of you that may live on a street that kind of has a no, no stop signs, just kind of long down block, kind of just people can cut through and just fly down. Well, you know, during that time, people would put those little, you know, fold out like green kids with the little flag thing out. It says, hey, kids are here, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, from time to time, you see those down the street, and, and that may help. You know, that kind of, you know, you drive by, and you're like, oh, there's kids there, you know. <laughs> but you're still, like, pedal to the floor, like, trying to go. Um, and then it took it up a notch. Uh, the police department stuck in, and we know this because they stuck one right in the middle of our yard. Um, so one of those signs that clocks your speeding. And so you're driving down, and instead of just seeing the green little things, you're like, oh, you know, I bet maybe I should slow down. You know, you see this number, and it tells you, hey, I know you're going this fast. <laughs> and all of a sudden in your brain, what happens? You start seeing that and you go, okay, not only is it telling me and making me aware of how fast I'm going, it's governing me. Like there's someone watching me and you feel it. You know, that, that is a, a, a taste of that. You know, you're aware of how you see not only yourself, but what's governing you. You know, when Paul wrote this letter, what he wanted to get at and as in review a bit, is that we talked a little bit about, he always writes a letter, not just, and, and maybe you think this about the Bible, maybe you're new here to even Christianity or back kind of coming into a church, and you've heard it this way, it's just, uh, these are just this, the, you need to live this way certain 
certain ways, to-dos. But actually, if you read any letter like Paul's in Colossians, it always begins with what's called the indicative, the fact of who you are. This is who you are. And then it moves to the imperative. So the fact always drives to the work. And we talked a little bit last week how we get that mixed up. One of the hardest things of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is looking at, wait, I'm doing that thing again, where I think everything I do about Christianity tells me I'm in relationship with Jesus. No, no, no. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Here's who you are. Remember, and he even begins in this passage to say that. And then here's the imperative. Here's how you live it out. Here's the practice of it. And it gets no more practical than this one. Line by line telling us about how do you live in the church How do you live in a family? How do you live in relationship with your your parents? How do you live in your job? Boom, boom, boom. We could actually break these three things apart and it would be easily a sermon for each or a Bible study or something like that. Because there's so much packed in here. You know, my mom is this way, and maybe some of you are this way. She, She will sometimes wear a set of glasses and then have like another set on her head. And then I've actually seen her with three pairs. So like sunglasses, and then another pair, and then a pair here. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know they make, like, transition things now, right? Like, you can wear it. So it's like, how do you, you know, you move them down. You t- the, Paul is trying to come to us and say, you don't need three pairs. Everybody has a pair of glasses they're looking at the world with. How do you look at the world? See, why this matters is everybody has something that governs them. Everybody sees the world through a pair of lenses. It it doesn't matter if you're here, and even you'd say, I'm still kind of kicking the tires of this Christianity thing. I don't know what it is. Even if you're coming in here with that, you, you have a set of lenses that you see the world through. And you may try and use multiple ones, but there's one that you always go back to. Paul is trying to get you and I to understand. What does it look like for us to have the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of who Jesus is, who we are in him, to be our set of lenses that changes everything about how we live. Be it our job, our family, our friends, and in our church. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at how he breaks it down. These are his three points here. Uh, I love it. It's the easiest thing for a pastor to say, Paul's given the three points. I don't got to make up some cute thing for you. There are three points here. He talks about our church, our home, and our work. Church, home, and work. We're going to look at those three. Now, the first one, as he begins in verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. When he uses that language, one body, he's referring to the church. He's referring to the body of the church. Now, this is where you'd probably be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Paul's going to say, you know, here's how to practice caring for each other in the church. Well, then he goes on to say and be thankful, right? He says, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, the peace of Christ, that sounds like something, oh, didn't we just do that? The peace, you know, passing of the peace. But the language here of peace is not what you typically think. It's not that Paul is using the word peace like, oh, man, this is a sweet thing that all Christians get. And it can be used that way a lot. But peace here, notice, is connected to another word. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace is actually a completely different thing. It's actually saying, what rules your hearts is peace. In fact, the Greek for peace here is used differently to say, it's almost like an umpire. 
Somebody who comes in and makes the tough calls in the midst of what's chaos and disorganization. I was just at a couple of baseball games yesterday, and uh, it wasn't just bad umpiring. I mean, some of you have done this job before, being an umpire or a ref, and it can just be hard. And these two guys, bless their souls, it was rough. There were a million calls made, and I, a game that normally lasts a 12-year-old an hour and a half lasted maybe two and a half hours, one game, because they kept, the coaches kept coming out and saying, whoa, that's a balker, that's a, that, no, you can't sub people in this way, and, the, and, and instead of the umpires keeping it moving, they're like, okay, hold on, stop time, and they would come in the middle, and they'd talk, and then they'd look and say, well, I don't know, and they'd make a call, and then the other coach would come out. And that would take 20 more minutes. No, what are you doing? That's wrong. No, 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 no. What was interesting was one of our coaches came over and he said, look, hey, I understand if they make a call I don't like. But the biggest thing is they didn't have control of the game. An umpire is to have control of the game, not let the game control them. And what's going on in this passage is to say, peace isn't one of those things like, hey, you're supposed to just have no problems and stuff. No, 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 no. There are plenty of problems. But what's the thing that has control of the game? What has control of us as Christians? Peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. It's the thing that when we do have discussion, disagreement, which I actually hope we do if we're a healthy church. I was sitting with somebody the other day, and we were having discussion in a circle uh, about all sorts of issues, and I was like, man, I love this. I love having those discussions. Because even if we land on different sides of it, or even if we're kind of like parsing things or looking, whatever it is, that we, we say, okay, what, what, what finishes this off? What's the arbiter between us? The peace of Christ rules. And here's the thing. Does, if that's the case, doesn't that set the church tone differently than just, why come here? I mean, shouldn't we ask the question, why is the church different? What gives it any better leg up than anything else? What is it that changes not just in here but out there when we leave? That people see a community that, hey, the thing that guides them isn't that they can just disagree or it's not just that they kind of, oh, you sit over here, you're not going to talk to that person next week. It's what rules in your hearts? The peace of Christ. That's where we're supposed to say, oh man. And maybe you're right here right now and you're going, I do not have that peace. Not because you don't have a tranquility, but because maybe you're unwilling to seek that peace of Christ ruling in your hearts with some of the relationships you have around you. What governs you? Is it an avoidance? Is it an easy hatred? Or is the peace of Christ rule so that people say the culture here is different? They had that in their culture and we do in ours. That's easy stuff. What rules our hearts? Notice he repeats this in the next verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul's like going, not only the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what this means isn't the words of Jesus. He's, He's not talking about that, hey, everything Jesus spoke Let those dwell in you. Okay, yes, that's that's important. But he's saying actually even something greater that umbrellas over that. He's saying, let the word that proclaims Jesus dwell in you. 
So that what dwells in the midst of this, so the peace of Christ rules is the arbiter, but what dwells, what takes up residence, what's, what, where do we, what finds home in here? It isn't that we just have Christ Presbyterian Church Music Row, come on in. What actually gives us bedrock is that the word of Christ, that what we proclaim about Jesus, the good news of the God, so gospel just means the good news, that proclamation is what takes up residence and takes up home here. So that those are the words that, that people hear. That's what we live out of. Uh, when my older son was younger, much younger, he, he was actually in a, um, and some of you may be over there doing this, he was actually uh, submitted into just a, a kind of a test trial thing over um, at Peabody over here at Vanderbilt. And to do kind of a, a speech and sound thing. And so what they did was not any big deal, but what they did what, that was a big deal. They would give us T-shirts that had a little Velcro on the front. And they stick a recorder in it and say, hey, turn this on in the morning. Leave it on all day. Okay, if you're going through in your brain, that is terrifying sounding. <laughs> you're going, what are they saying? What am I saying? And every now and then you, we would look at his shirt and say, oh, there it is. We'd be like... But, you know, after a while, you get used to it. You kind of just start, you, you know, you kind of forget about it. So when you first put it on, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe the first hour or two. Then after that, when he was really little, you, we're just carrying him around. We're talking. We're like, oh, my word. What did they hear? You know, what are we saying in our family? It's not just, a, oh, man, I, I accidentally dialed somebody. That, this is a, like you're recorded all day, and they listen to every single thing. And you know why? What were they doing? They wanted to know how our language impacted his language. How he's growing in language because we are speaking and how we're speaking to him and what we're speaking to him. So the instruction actually wasn't just for him, for them to listen back and go, oh, he's using words. It was actually for them to hear us and say, what are the words you're using? See, that's what Paul's getting at is the word of we're dwelling richly is that it sits here. And there are times when we forget about it, but why does it dwell richly? It, it, it takes up residence so that we go back to it and we're aware of it. Because it says right after that, and whatever you do in word or in deed, verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word indeed, when he uses that, maybe some of you who've grown up in a church element have heard this, but I just want to touch on this briefly because there's plenty more in this passage we could talk about. But I think over the centuries, the, the, uh, particularly American church, has taken word and deed and split those apart. So as that you could possibly put it this way, the conservative church in America has lifted up the word portion of that and said, I mean, this is more important. If you get into that deed stuff, you're getting all social. And maybe on the other side of that, there's the, the, the liberal side of the American church that so deed matters. The word's important, but it's just, if you're not doing anything with it, it's worthless. So don't worry. That, maybe that's not even as important. If you're not living it out, that's all that you need to do. Hey, what is Paul saying? If you're lifting one up over the other, you're missing it. In fact, the Greek of what he says is that the totality of what a church should show is word and deed. What do he say? In word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
What does it look like for us to trust? And maybe that needs to exhume some things in your own heart about, man, when, we, when this is announced from up front or when this is spoken from the Bible, it hits some part of you. Do we check ourselves first? Because this passage, if you've noticed, it hits on every part of your practice. Does the relationship that who you are in Jesus impact how you exalt both the word of God, his proclamation, the good news of the gospel, and how you do that indeed to the rest of the world? You cannot have one without the other. It's like a plane with two wings. You can't have a plane with one wing. It has to fly upright and correct. This is the church, but he jumps right in. Paul doesn't waste any time. He moves from the church to the home. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, immediately when you read that, I'm sure, and this is actually in another letter, Ephesians, when it uses the word submit. And the word submit in Ephesians and before this, if you notice, this letter would have been read publicly, just as we did the entire letter in its entirety. And, and, and there are portions of it before you get to this that Paul is striking specifics, but he, he first hits in the hole. He actually is saying what we actually did with the kids, bringing them up, is that the ch- entirety of the church is to submit to one another. There is a picturesque of pointing back to Jesus. And in fact, when he says this about what it means in addressing the specific needs of submitting, we can get stuck on that. But actually, if you read the Greek of what Paul says, it's a twist on a Greek word because he's trying to instruct a, a, a large Greek community that where the, what they've said in this Colossian culture was obey. But he, he puts in the Greek word submit to say, A, this is a voluntary action of someone. B, it's within the context of this husband-wife relationship. And C, it is not one of submitting in every way as if to whatever uh, the Lord forbids that you submit to or whatever he doesn't that you should. The ultimate driving force back here is that all first submit. And he's speaking to a countercultural need here. That the way that husbands and wives were treating each other, notice, and you'll hear this in a minute with, the, with how the husbands are called, is not what you think it is. We typically want to, remember, we want to put our glasses on to read this. The way that the Roman culture was treating one another within the family construct would even treat some children as slaves. Women did not have voluntary. It was obey. Men had all the authority and power and did not love and thought their role was, I exude this. And so often what we take in that is that this means submit across the board. What submit means is a military term. It means reordering of our life. And so it's a coming in with first both of these Submission, not forbidding what God commands and not commanding something that God forbids. But in fact, it's a voluntary, again, a voluntary submission for women to look at their relationship in the Lord and show a different relationship to their husbands than any other household around. 
pointing to this care for them and for their home in a different way. Submission does not mean that there's perfection. But notice, even here and beyond, as fitting to the Lord doesn't mean that the husband is the Lord, but as fitting to display that care of who we ultimately submit to. And then moving even to the husband. Love your wife. And it sounds like, well, yeah, submit and love. That sounds good. You know, actually, the word love here in Greek is even more digging into the, the heart of men who position themselves to say, we are, we, this is my title. But to say to love as... And what we see even in Ephesians, to love as the Lord loves, to lay the life down, to show, to display the love of Christ, means they're both in both directions needing to hear something that pushes on the relationship that transforms the marriage culture in that time, just as it should for us. In fact, it says here about husbands, Love your wives, do not be harsh with them. The language of harshness was thoughtless nagging and fault finding. The continually nagging and fault finding. And was to say, quit to look back at oneself and to love. As it says, even in, in multiple places, love your wife as you love yourself. How do you love yourself? The continual expression of that. Now, looking at this, it would be easy to even look at that passage and say, what does love look like? It looks more than just keeping the peace. It looks more than just trying to have everything going right and settled. It means you have to what? Be aware. What do we say at the beginning? Both of these. I mean, you have to be aware. What do you see? Not just that you're driving down the road of your life, but what governs your life? What governs our lives? Is it the good news of Jesus and who we are in him, or is it other things? By no means would the church then, nor does it now. And many people have been harmed by these, these type passages. And I've talked to a number of women and men who have been through situations that these passages have mis, been misapplied and misunderstood. The theology is correct. But are we submitting ourselves under a Lord who loves us in that way? Remember, at the very beginning of this, what does it say? Out loud read to not just the men and women, but to our children. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed we're called in one body. That does not exclude somebody or another, that one body, and be thankful. If the peace of Christ and the word of Christ are dwelling and ruling richly, that means everyone. And even right before this, as we read, that all are called into that body. I want to speak to our kids for a moment, because the very next verse is, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, and that means our little kids and our big kids. This is hearkening out of the fifth commandment. It's drawing out of the fifth commandment. Of what does it mean to honor and love? To obey. And what it really means is not, look, and your parents are out to lunch sometimes. I am too. 
Sometimes we don't know what we're doing. Sometimes we're struggling. Sometimes we sit with you and we want to help and we want to speak into your ways and your life and we miss it. Swing and a miss. And I know it's so hard. Kids, I know sometimes it's so hard to, as I know, even as a grown child, I'm a little, just a little taller than you, to think about what does it really mean to honor my parents? Doesn't mean that they're always right. But it does mean that God is right for giving us those parents. And how do we love God by actually listening to our parents? Listening to what they say. Now, I'm not talking about things that are just out there. We just talked about that. About things that go against God's word, forbidding and those. But I'm talking about, what does it mean to honor? Kids, there's, you have, I want to say this to our kids in here. I know that some are around at different spaces. I can't see all their faces. I want to encourage you of how much you teach us, not just people who have children, but don't. People who long to have children. You are, you're teaching the adults in this room. What does it mean to love our Heavenly Father? This is why Jesus called you. This is why Jesus said, come. Don't, don't keep them. Unless you learn. Unless Jesus said, unless you, and he was talking to all the adults. Unless you learn to enter in the kingdom of heaven like a child, you will not enter. Do you realize that dependence, that listening that obeying, that care you have for your parents humbles them. When my boys actually listen <laughs> and do things when I ask them to do them, I actually sometimes, this happened even yesterday, I sat back and thought, man, the fact that they're willing to take my words and put them into practice is very, very humbling. Parents, let me speak to you really quick. As it says, fathers do not provoke your children lest them, they become discouraged. The fathers in that culture were the key sole responsibility holders of the discipline in that case. But I think this goes out to all parents, particularly in our broader culture. Some of my worst moments as a parent have come out of three things. <laughs> My anger, my anxiety, and my exhaustion. My anger, my anxiety, and my exhaustion. I have e either exasperated, notice what it says, lest they become discouraged. How in the world do we discourage children when we get just mad because we want everything to be exactly the way we want it? And instead of stopping to say, what's going on here? We want to see what they're doing. If they do exactly what we say to do, that will, make, that will solve every piece of anger, anxiety, and exhaustion in here. And I cannot tell you how many times I've missed completely swinging a miss as a parent thinking that. Out of my anxiety of wanting everything to go just right. And instead it just leaks out on my children. And I think I'm parenting them. And yet I'm trying to solve my own anxiety. And it runs right over them. And they get mad. And I'm like, why are you mad? 
because it came out of me. And our exhaustion, some of the, I'm just tired. So I'll either over-discipline or under-discipline because I'm just tired. I just can't do it at the end of the week. We can exhaust our children in that way. And this, hey, I, I think this goes for any of us in any position to teach or train a child. You don't have to be a parent. I'm coaching a whole team of first grade boys how to play football. I guarantee you, I've hit all three of those levels. The Lord comes at us practically to teach us that. Whatever you do, work hardly for the Lord. Final thing here is on work, and I think we could hit that. Oh, man, we could do, again, I, I said we could say, do this whole thing in three different sermons. I'm going to sum this one up very quickly. And I think it says it well. That as you read this about what it means for bond servants obeying in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Jump down to verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you all ha- also have a master in heaven. Do you know what Paul's doing is undercutting? A, he is never and nor is the Bible ever condoning slavery. Ever. Period. B, what he's doing is sowing into the roots of work in their culture, as we should ours. That what does it mean for us to not only be good workers, but good masters or managers or bosses? That sowing the seeds of the gospel goes both ways. You know why? Because there's actually only one master. There's only one true manager over all of life, and that is the Lord. Look, we come to a table here that really, if you think about what we do every week when we come to this table, we come and we, we come forward and we stand shoulder to shoulder with every single person here. That means the small child next to you is coming forward to think about what does this table mean for them? We're gonna eat forever. This is a small picture that the community you see around you, generations upon generations of the peace of Christ that rules in our hearts here will be what ultimately rules in us and what we will dwell in forever. We practice. This is why practicing what Paul is giving us is so important why what he lays out for us is that who we are in Christ displays a whole new world. We're actually leaving these doors and giving every single person around us a picture of, you want to know the best news and what it's going to look like? I fail in it all the time, but here's what I'm hoping for because I'm in Jesus and I will strive to live in him in the way that I live in both my all my church, my work, and my home. Because my ultimate master, my ultimate manager, the one who guides me, the one who has me, and, and has all authority on me, and yet treats me with the most grace of anyone, is the Lord Jesus. Amen?